got a few points I want to share with you this morning, and it's going to be an easy lesson if we call it a lesson. It's not going to be too taxing, but I do say please stay awake if you can. That would be great. That would really help me. And give me those smiles. And if you don't understand me, just pretend you understand me. That would be cool. And then we'll get it translated later. But I want to share a story with you. There was a guy, and he was a playwright, and he wrote this play. His name was Christopher Michael. He wrote a play called Black Angel. And this was all about a Nazi war criminal who was responsible for murdering over 200 French Jews. Anyway, they tried him at the Nuremberg court. And for some reason, compassion must have been shown. Instead of getting executed, which he might have deserved in our eyes, right, in the flesh, they actually gave him only 14 years of imprisonment. And he's responsible for over 200 killings. I find that incredible. Absolutely incredible. 14 years. You would have thought, if anything else, he would have at least got a life sentence without parole, wouldn't you? He did his 14 years. He went to France. He bought a little cabin somewhere out in the woods, out in a village, nearby village. Obviously, he wanted to lay low. Now, I don't know if he wanted to be forgiven of what he'd done. Don't know that story. But then a French journalist got hold of information of where he was. And what he did, he did this. He went to the townspeople and shared that information. Wow, that's what he did. So you know what was going to happen next. We are not having this. He deserved execution. He does not deserve to live after what he did. So they're taking, they're taking what the judge, they thought the judge should have given, they're taking it into their own hands. So the journalist said, I tell you what, I am so bitter about this because I know he killed my grandfather and my grandmother and some children. And I think what we should do, we should get a noose, go to where he is and string him up and hang him high for all to see. And to see, to show the world that we are not in agreement with that 14-year prison sentence. He deserved death. But what he did was this, this journalist, he said, but first, I'm going to go around and see him face to face. He was full of hatred, deep down in his heart. And he knocked on the door, right? And what he saw was pitiful. It was a frail man, arched. You see, in his mind, what he expected to see was maybe a young 25-year-old soldier, Nancy, dressed in a Nazi uniform. That was the image that he had, right? But as time went by, obviously, it gets to us, we all end up getting old and frail. And it shocked him. He wanted a 25-year-old SSS general, whatever it was, so he could absolutely be justified for what they were about to do. But time had gone by. And when he saw this frail old man at the door, he went inside and started to speak with him. We don't know what the conversation was, but the journalist left, and he went to the townspeople, and he said, don't do what we said we would do. Then the next day, he went back to see the old man again, the Nazi. And he said, 
they are probably going to come and kill you, but I can take you away where they won't find you. And the Nazi criminal said this to him. And he said, that's great. That's fine. But I need you to do one thing. And he said, what is it? He said, I want you and I need you to forgive me. And the French journalist said, I can't do that. I can't forgive you. You see, the problem was, he was willing to show compassion, but his hatred was so, so entrenched in his heart, he couldn't make the choice to forgive him. That was the problem. You see, compassion sometimes can last for a little moment, can't it? But then it's gone. But when we choose to forgive, it should last forever. So forgiveness is a choice. And we're going to get back to this exciting story of David. Now to give you a a summary of what was going on, David escaped from Saul. Saul went on a campaign to kill the Philistines. And David eventually found a place where he could hide. And he was hiding in a place called Engedi. So Saul's with his merry men, he's killing all the Philistines. And then suddenly, all that stops. He ends the campaign. And suddenly, again, his attention turns to David. It shows you what is deep down in Saul's heart, doesn't it? He's killing the Philistines, but really deep down in his heart, there's only one man that he wants off this earth. And there he is trying to kill hundreds of thousands of Philistines. He probably thinks he's doing God a favor, but there's one man he needs to disappear, and that is David. And so we're going to take it up there. I'm going to read from the NIV, and the slides will be in the NIV. I I love that particular version. So if you do have your books, you, you may follow with me. And we're going to take it up from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now, it's not the longest of chapters, which is great. This is why it can be a little shorter this morning. So I'm reading from the NIV, and it says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Gedi, in Gedi. Now, let me tell you very quickly before we carry on. This tells you something. How did he know he was there? Well, because David was entrenched so much with hatred in his heart, he had spies all over the place. So although he's doing one campaign, killing the Philistines, he's still got his guys out looking for David. He will not let this go. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David, his men, were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, 
David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, my master who is the anointed one, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to, to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? It's always people spreading rumors, isn't it? Always people saying something and always people believing. We have to find out what the truth is ourselves right from the horse's mouth, don't we? People back then were no different than we are today. Very same people. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand, cut off of the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be your judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? Is that your voice? And the reason I'm stopping, because our voices are very important. Saul really knew whose voice it was, but he was just checking. Is that your voice, David, my son? My son. It shows you what relationship they had before all this was going on. David calls him father, and now he's calling him my son. And he wept aloud, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
I want to show you where David probably was. Can you show that slide, Jacob? Try and come with me. That would be great, guys. This is where David probably was. And this is actually in Gedi in Israel. Joseph, when he visited there, and Ali actually saw this place. It's a very rocky place. If you want to hide anywhere, young people, that's the place to hide. No one's really going to find you. But unfortunately, Saul had all the spies out on every corner. So they knew exactly where David was. And I find this amazing. David is in this cave. Now, I don't know if you've been in a cave, right? I've been in a cave. I've been in big caves. I've been in smaller caves. But the thing about caves is this. You can't even drop a pin without it echoing because the sound bounces off the walls because there's nothing else outside of it to interfere with the sound. So all the sound is contained within that cave and you only have to say something and boom, 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 it's bouncing its way out. And yet you have David, 600 men in there. And so I'm trying to look in the detail thinking, and I'm, honestly, I'm not doubting, but I look for the impossible in this. This is impossible, isn't it? Got 600 men who are breathing, right? 600 men. Then you've got David in there, and then you've got Saul in there, and I'm thinking, wow, they only need to <clears throat> clear the throats, and it's going to Saul. But it does say that they were deep down in the cave. And then Saul enters, and then I'm thinking as I'm reading Scripture. This is what I love about Scripture. Show the next slide, if you will. And then I'm thinking, well, what would his robe look like? I tried to get a proper real photograph, but they don't exist, so... Uh, this is what you get, right? <laughs> Somebody's obviously made this. And this is what an Old Testament king's robe would look like. And the reason they would wear these all the time, really, even in battle, they would probably have a shorter robe, maybe, but they would wear them because they wanted to be seen. Of course they do. They want to be seen as royalty, right? And this is maybe what, I say maybe, don't go away, you know, and say, Paul, it wasn't like that. I've researched it, and this is all I got, Right? Maybe it did look like that. And then I thought, well, now it's all coming together because my disbelief is this. If I'm crawling down a cave like a commando, right, and I wouldn't have a pair of scissors either, right? Nothing as good as that. You've got this sword, hoping it's sharp, and you're crawling along there or whatever, and then you're about to cut that off. Now, let's not think too deeply. We're all human. If you're not, well, let's talk about it. But we're all prone to having to go to the bathroom, right? So I don't know what type of bathroom break this was, but that's my imagination getting too far and getting in, in, too far, right? I'm thinking, well, let's put it this way. He would have had to maybe take his robe off, right? That's what we don't see in the scripture. But I'm thinking, well, yeah, I would actually take my robe off, put it somewhere, far out the way, because I want to be comfortable, and then I have to take my mantle off, and then I have to start disrobing. And then I thought, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. I have the image of, a, of like a commando and just doing that and trying to get away as quick as he can without making any noise. But now, if we think outside the box a bit, even though it's not in there, that's what I think or imagine is probably the best scenario. So if you doubt it happened, God gives us the ability to think it through. It's a natural thing he was doing. There is no way that he's ever thinking that Saul is going to be in there either. 
And you've probably got 3,000 men, as he said, outside who are making a bit of a noise too. Not going to be quiet. And so that's what I think probably happened. Now, I don't know because it's not truly in Scripture, but we do know that David actually cut off his robe. The reality is, though, about all this, is that I found out this very, very big word called um, providence. And I was looking at the providence of God, and I was looking at the story as we've been going through, and I was saying, God, what does this providence actually mean? Does this actually mean that you are so in control of everything that whatever I do doesn't matter? Or if I mess up and fail, is that part of what your plan is within providence? And I was trying to explain it, and then I went on the internet and said, surely somebody's got a better explanation than me. Some people actually say about providence, especially an atheist, they'll say, well, you know, if God's got providence, it means he controls every single little thing. That means you don't have free will at all. But that's not true, because God knows what's coming, right? God knows the future. God knows every breath you're going to take. So what he does, he works with our failings, he works with our abilities, he works with our gifts and talents. And if we sway away from those, does that change God's providence? Well, no, he already knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen with Saul. That's why David was going to be crowned the next king, right? But what part do we play in God's providence? You ever thought about that? What part are you playing in God's providence? Well, John Piper says it like this. I love it. He says, providence is like this. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purpose, God sees it that it happens. Read it again. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees it that it happens. I thought, wow. And I'm actually playing a part in this. You're actually playing a part in this. And believe it or not, Saul was playing a part in it. Even with his disobedience and his failings, he was a part of God's providence. And if someone says to you today or tomorrow, hey, God's not in control. In fact, I was listening, and I better not mention the preacher because I'm not a witch hunter. But this preacher, very well known, billionaire, got planes, I think you might know, and he goes on camera and he says this. He says, God is not in control of everything on this earth. And I'm like, I have to rewind it, you know? That's an old term, by the way, for going back to watch it for all you young ones, right? To rewind a little bit, right? Then, seriously, you've got thousands who come to your meetings and you're saying God is not in control? That man does not understand what providence means and he does not understand what God's purpose is for each and every one of us. And then he goes on to say, God is in control of heaven. <laughs> I have to laugh because I'm thinking, I don't know what else to do with it. God is in control. God is in control of every situation. He will not take his hands off it. We are never to live in fear because God is in control. God is in control of heaven the earth, the universe. And let's face it, if you believe that God created everything, 
then of course he's in control. A powerful God who wouldn't be in control of that is a man-made pagan God that does not exist. So David was taking the biggest risk of his lifetime at that point in time as he knew one wrong move would mean the end. And let's face it, Saul had 3,000 able troops. He had 3,000 of his best troops. He didn't want to just go up with five assassins, like Assassin's Creed, right? Oh, no. He wanted to go out with 3,000 of his best. And unfortunately, David had 600 of not the best. Second rate, really. But I tell you something, the difference was those 600 men were willing to follow David because he was a man of truth, and those 3,000 were forced, probably, to follow Saul. Doesn't matter how many men you've got. Doesn't matter. These 600 men were about to give their lives up for their true king, which would be David eventually. Now, we know the end story on all this. That's great. David kind of knew. But even though he was living in God's providence and he knew he would be king, he was not running around with a cape saying, I am a man of steel. Nothing can harm me because I've been prophesied that I'm going to be king one day. It might have been that he was taken out in God's providence, I don't know. But he didn't become arrogant towards it or ignorant. He knew that still there was a death sentence on him. What was once their sanctuary in this cave actually became their prison. They were trapped. And David knew I'm cutting this robe off, and I hope it goes well. And then Saul goes out. Now, I reckon this could have took at least 10 minutes on my reckoning, right? I've not got a robe, but I'm thinking, let's think about it, making your way in, 10 minutes. And I bet when Saul left that cave, David sighed a sigh of relief. I would have. You would have. But his men were still saying... You have an opportunity to take him out. What's going on, David? You see, they were also full of hatred. And that's the difference between one man whose heart is full of hatred and the other man whose heart is full of God, is full of compassion, is full of forgiveness, like we see David eventually will be. And he knew also that he could not touch God's anointed. I think we have that in a slide somewhere. If the slides don't go up, don't worry. The other thing is this, that David at any point could have reacted to his own anger. And I know, folks, that some people might have pursued you in your life to harm you, whether it's justified or unjustified. And I know there are trials and challenges that come our way that we feel are from the enemy. And we get so angry. And you know, at times it's okay. But it's what we do with the anger that is important. If we react to the anger, usually it means bad consequences follow. David knew that. 
if he would have relied upon his anger, then it would have been all over. There is no way he's going to win a battle of 3,000 men. But the question is with that, or would he? Because as I said before, 3,000 men who probably didn't want to follow Saul anymore, but were forced to. If we look back at chapter 16, this is the promise that David had on his life. Chapter 16, verse 1, it said, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your home with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In God's providence, David knows now his purpose. But he also knew that I still can't run around and take this for granted and be ignorant to the fact that there still is a death penalty upon me. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever been in a situation where you've had so much fear like David did suffer and is trapped. I have a story to tell, believe it or not, right? I once was in a band. Anybody know that? There you go. And I was the singer of the band. And we, in 1987, we were asked to visit probably one of the worst places on earth in a place called Manchester. It was a no-go area. It's a place nobody wanted to go. But of course, I'm in a band. I'm an evangelist. And we're invited to this youth club. You know what a youth club is? No? A little place where people gather like we do on a Wednesday, but it's a special social building where, where they go once a week. And as we're driving in there, we're praying, God, protection upon our lives. God, I didn't know what providence was even at that time. I'm just a young Christian wanting to tell others about Jesus, right? And we're traveling, we're praying, protection over our lives. We've heard about this place. It's a bit like Nineveh, right? We've heard about this place, but I tell you what, we have the power of God in our lives. Whoa, come on, guys. And we're unpacking all the gear. We get into this youth club, and we can see people on the horizon, buildings half-lived in, degradation, smash windows, kids screaming, Drunks all over the place. That's to put it mildly. So we set up all our gear, and there we are, ready to go. Vicar there, he's responsible for young people coming. About 10 young kids turn up. Where's the crowd we were promised? So we start singing. We start singing these great evangelistic songs that we thought were cool, but not really that cool at the time. We did not impress any of those 10 kids out there. So we said, hey, let's do a couple of U2 numbers. So we started to do some U2 numbers. And then we stopped and had a break. And then suddenly the doors opened, and in walks this guy, like this. That's where the Manchester walk comes in, lads, right? That's what we talk about. And he's like this, right? And he's got this big fishtail jacket coat on. He's walking towards me like this. Then two other guys appear, and they're just like that, at the door. I'm thinking, this does not look good. Does not look good. Jane might remember this. She's sat right at the back there. And uh, 
particularly, ooh, yeah, protection time, Lord. Where's this, where's this iron of steel I'm supposed to have? I literally started to shake. I've, I know, Chris, you're thinking that's hard to believe, I know. Well, I started to tremble inside a little bit because what I was happening, my focus was going off God, right? And it started to go on this dude coming up to me. And then in come some other guys and the 10 that were there disappeared. They know something <laughs> that they forgot to tell us about. And the guy comes up to me like this, opens his jacket and he said, who gave you permission to come on our turf? You can understand me, right? I've got to do it in his language. Who gave you permission to come on our turf? And he opens his jacket and I look down and I see a knife and I see what represents a pretty cool gun. And he closes his jacket. Now it could have been a plastic one, right? I don't care. I'm shaking in my boots. And I look for the next exit, two exits. Oh, they're all covered, great. This is a movie straight out of Hollywood. Here we go. What would Tom Cruise do? Didn't even know him at the time. What would Clint Eastwood do? The man with no name. No, I can't do that. That's not a good idea, Clint Eastwood. No, no, what do I do? Anyway, we started to sing our evangelistic songs and you could see this guy just looking at me. And then we have another little break. We decided to take these breaks. And he came up to me and said, you're not going to get out of here. I said, oh, right, okay. So we start singing again. And all I could do was say, God, I'm so petrified at the moment. What do I do? And it wasn't a calmness that came over me. I'm not kidding you. I continued to tremble. Somehow my mic didn't tremble, Luke, but I'm sure it was. And then I said to the guitarist, let's do a U2 song. Let's do the streets where the streets have no name because that's literally <laughs> where we are. And we started, dum, 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 dum. where the streets have no name. And we're singing away there. And then this guy, the dude's looking at me and I see his leg doing this. And like, where the streets have no name, come on. Get it. Then he's like that, and he starts to rock. And then we did another U2 song. Can't remember, what, it wasn't Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I know that one, Scott, it wasn't that one. That would not have been appropriate. It was another one. And then I'm singing this U2 song. This guy starts doing this, and all his mates coming in doing this. Anyway, cut a long story short, he came up to me after, and he looked at me, Aiden. I'm going to come down, right? shaking, he looked at me like that, and I thought, here we go, and he says, you're all right, you are, you're sound, and walked off like that, I said, hey, you guys can come on our turf anytime you want, and he says, I tell you what, you'll also get protection, <laughs> isn't that an odd story, gangsters willing to protect God's children, <laughs> that's how I saw it, now I've not exaggerated it, the trembling, I have not exaggerated, Luke. I was trembling, and I must admit. And there are times in our lives when we come across situations where your focus will disappear. You will focus on what's in front of you. You'll begin to tremble. You'll want to implode. But listen, stay calm. Look to Jesus. Look to God and refocus now, I'm not saying you could go out into that world 
and nobody pops you off. We're not guaranteed that, but they cannot take away your eternity in Christ. No matter what happens, they cannot take that away. What is God's purpose for your life this morning? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves in life. The amount of Christians you can talk about today and say, what's your purpose? I don't know. Yeah, but you're 48 years old. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not being critical. I expect our young people to say, I don't know yet. But when they say yet, that's the important part. I don't know means I'm not that bothered. But if you say I don't know yet, means you want to discover it. That's the important part of language. No full stop there, right? Now, David knew that he would be king one day. But like I said, he did not walk around taking that for granted that he could survive everything or anyone. He knew at any moment he could be taken out. But he did the right thing. I don't think he took a risk at the end of it. I don't think he took a chance. I think when he went out and he went to see Saul, I think he knew that God was with him and God was speaking with him saying, do this because the table now is gonna be turned around and this is where Saul will finally admit to himself that he is no longer going to be king. You see, Saul did not want to admit it. He didn't want to be removed. Nobody does. The president does not want to be removed. They want to carry on for as long as they can. And you know, sometimes in ministry, sometimes as volunteers, even sometimes what we do, God might have to remove us. But we see it as the enemy. We always see it as the enemy, don't we? Oh, didn't go well. I've been fired or I've been this. Well, hang on a minute. Let's look at two things. Why and where was God in it? Because we're already see where Satan is in it because Satan's got control of our lives and everything, hasn't he? No, he hasn't. Look for God in the detail. God, what are you showing me? I messed up, I failed, but where are you? What's gonna happen next for my life? David knew what his calling was. He knew he would be king. He knew his purpose. And when we fail, especially in something that we know God has given us to do, it's painful. It's painful, we know that. Saul must have been suffering a lot of pain. But if he would have just achieved what God had given him to do, then he would not be in this position. And I'm sorry, folks, if you've been given a purpose, but you've failed to complete that purpose, well, you probably know already that God's removed you and replaced you with somebody else who will fulfill that purpose. And it's painful, and it hurts. But what I love about David, he didn't go, nah, 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 I'm gonna be king. He knew that Saul was still anointed. And he knew that he was not gonna touch his 
anointed. He was so obedient to God throughout it all. And that's where that lies, the obedience. You know, you might be suffering this morning with somebody that you feel is pursuing you and wants to hurt you. And you might feel justified to go out and get revenge. But we need to learn from David that we can't be like that because we are not judges. We have to leave God to do that. We have to focus on God and turn to God. And I know things are hard sometimes. I know. But you know, Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me, and it's going to be a glorious journey. Going to be like Disneyland. No. We expect turbulence. Heavy, heavy turbulence. We expect people to come against us. That's what we expect. But it's how we deal with that. Do we react to anger or do we react to God's grace and his providence? I want to share with you, we will move on. I thought this was going to be shorter, but it obviously isn't. In Romans, it says this, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If any man could have been justified to take, to take the law into his own hands, it was David. But yet he chose not to because he counted sufferings as part of God's providence. He counted it as part of his journey. And I know, folks, whether even you're pursuing somebody that you don't like, they've harmed you. Maybe you're pursuing them or doing things that are wrong to them. I don't know, but it's not our place. It's God to decide what happens. And David knew that. I would like to say, if it was me, I would have took him out. Oh, my anger would have got the better of me, but it showed you what a weakling I was, right? When one guy comes to me and threatens me, yeah, that's how strong I was and powerful. And where do we turn to when we are in circumstances, when people come against us? Who and where do we turn to? Well, I hope this morning it is God. And let me tell you this, if you do know the purpose for your life, and believe me, you have a purpose for your life. I wouldn't agree when someone says God has a master plan for your life. I don't particularly agree with that. That's what I believe. But Paul talks about the purpose that he has for your life. God has a master plan that you fit into with a purpose to achieve. Saul messed up. He finally realized he'd messed up. And let me tell you, David could have judged. He could have showed vengeance. And I believe this. If he would have gone out and just taken Saul out and gone out and raised his hands, that 3,000 troops might have just been a relief to them and gone, King David. Because they would have heard about the prophecy. They would have heard that he was going to be king next. Maybe that would have happened. But he chose not to take judgment on himself. And it says this in Deuteronomy. It is mine to avenge, I will repay in due time. Their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. God does not allow anybody, anybody 
to, to be in a place that they should not be for too long. And our job is to focus on Christ, focus on the Father, and pray and say, God, so what do I do in this situation? When a Saul is about to do what he's doing to me, what am I to do? God, it's unfair what's happening to me. What am I to do? Well, you get down on your knees and you leave it to God. You pray it through. By sparing Paul's life, David convinced the, uh, the king temporarily to stop fighting against him. And more importantly, his actions revealed the work of the Lord in his life. What is your purpose today? What is the reason you're here this morning? But more importantly, what is your purpose in life? Matthew Henry comments this about providence, or about David, sorry. He says, David had a fair opportunity to destroy Saul, and to his honor, he did not make use of it. And his sparing Saul's life was as great, great an instance of God's grace in him as the persevering of his own life was God's providence over him. God is in the detail, always in the detail. Let's not be too quick to see where Satan is. Let's be quick to find out where God is in the detail. David spared Saul because he was not Saul's anointed judge. He was not called to execute Saul. And believe me, if he felt that was the way, that's what he would have done. He would have fulfilled that. Only God can avenge. Only God is the true judge. And God will not allow your suffering to continue forever. He will not allow it. He will take people out of your lives if you pray that shouldn't be in your lives. He will not allow them for too long, but he might allow them for a season. But where is God in that season? Only he can exact perfect vengeance. That's the thing. So let us pray that we turn to him. Now, I don't know about you as a European. I struggle with the death sentence here. And it's my opinion. I struggle with it. Do we have the right to take someone else's life for what they have done? Well, we all have different opinions, don't we? And I'm sure many of you have the right reasons what you think are the right reasons. I just know that there have been so many innocent people who have been executed who were innocent and found out later, but it's too late. You see, as perfect as we want to judge, sometimes we get it wrong. That's the problem. And sometimes it's the at the expense of someone's life. That's how bad it can get. Because our judgments are not perfect like God. That's why we have to leave it to God. John 18, 10, 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was uh, Mulchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We might have people who don't understand what we're going through, right? But it's the cup God has given us. 
It's the cup God has, has given you. It'd be so easy to retaliate in that way. But Jesus knew, don't do that. In fact, Jesus could judge there and then and wipe everybody out with a single breath, right? If he wanted to, maybe, I don't know. Leave that thought with you. But he chose to go to the cross and go through that punishment because he knew it was the only thing that could save you and I from eternal damnation. And we do not like to talk about hell, but let me tell you, that's where we would be today if it was not for Jesus Christ. And all those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, folks, as we're sat here watching the nice cars go by, they're on the wide road to hell, a lot of these people. And we're on the narrow road, right? Is it in God's providence that we're supposed to sit in here and leave it all to him? Or are we called to go out and tell these people our stories? And tell these people what you see driving the cars now. Tell them about Christ. And if they reject him, it's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. It's theirs. If I tell somebody about Christ, I'm not responsible for how they respond. They are. Thank you.